So Acts chapter 17 this morning, we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 to 15, uh, just to kind of set the stage, we were in Acts 16 the week, last week, and at the end of Acts 16, we saw the um, events that took place there in Philippi, uh, as Paul witnessed to some ladies along the river, Lydia, and then we had the, the demon cast out of the girl, and then we had the Philippian jailer that was saved as a result of their efforts, or God's efforts, through the great earthquake that happened, and their conviction to not flee, but to testify to God's goodness and His love, and that the Philippian jailer then became saved. And so we got a community, we got believers happening, right, in Philippi. So it's a great thing. This, Philippi was the beachhead into Europe for the gospel. Uh, and as you see that as part of Paul's second missionary journey in the different places he went, the conviction that he took with him to share the gospel. Uh, first and foremost, the Jews, so his focus was, was to go into the synagogues um, and then to the Gentiles as well. So uh, we know that this whole process, that it's a God-driven, God-divine uh, inspiration mission that they're on. The Holy Spirit had kept them from going to Asia. Paul had wanted to go there, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you're going to Macedonia. And it's amazing that when God works, what He does. And as we see, as we go through here, um, what takes place now as He heads towards Thessalonica. So they're asked to leave Philippi. They, they, they're jailed. They're, they're beaten. They're Roman citizens. They weren't supposed to be uh, beaten and charged the way that they were with, without being convicted. Um, so the city officials apologize but say, get out. And uh, you're causing up trouble. So they leave and they start to make their way to Thessalonica. Uh, they went to um, Amphipolis first, as we'll see as we come into verse 1 here. They passed through uh, Am Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who you have turned uh, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 
And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, uh, we see here at the beginning, they've make, they're making their way to Thessalonica. Uh, they come to these two towns apart. Uh, the journey to Thessalonica, about 100 miles. Uh, they've been in prison before. They were in Philippi. They were beaten. So they're probably in pretty rough shape as they make their way. Um, but they're headed towards Thessalonica. It's a large, large town. It's a port city. Uh, it's a community center, commerce center. So there's a lot happening there. There's about 200,000 people. And as we know, Paul's practice and as he mentions in Romans, he talks about bringing the truth to the Jews and then to the Greeks. He heads for the synagogue. Uh, we don't know if he just stayed in those two towns for a short time just to spend the night. It doesn't show any effort there to really evangelize. Um, but he obviously the next step that we're headed for is Thessalonica and making that a hub then for the gospel to go out from there. So he's in Thessalonica. He spends three Sabbath days, so he's at least three weeks probably up towards a few months. And we know from when, if you read the first Thessalonians, you can see that, that uh, he worked there. He was a tent maker. He earned a living. He didn't want to be a burden on the church there. <clears throat> so the, he worked, and they earned a living. And they ministered to the people that were there. Um, spending time going through the Scriptures, he says he reasoned with them. He's discussing. He's conversing. This is not so much lecturing it's not so much of, of, you know, getting up here as I am and just kind of giving you information. This was a conversation. He's interacting with them, addressing their questions, making logical, making rational arguments, appealing to reason based on facts, that compelling evidence that we were talking about, right? That, that, that what is found in Scripture. And what are we looking at? We're looking at the Old Testament. He's reasoning to them from Scripture. He's not using self-help books. <laughs> He's not you know, using the latest wisdom that's out there from the greatest people that are of the minds of the, of the people of that day. It's coming from Scripture. And hopefully you're kind of seeing the correlation here of the importance of how we need to be doing the same thing as we study this. So he's reasoning with them. He's answering their questions. We engage with people all the time, right, that have questions. Some quotes that Christ used at, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, comments that he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. They divide my garments and cast lot for my clothing. All, all of these pointing to Christ. So Psalm 22 is probably one of those ones that he would use. Also is a very common one that we would know would be Isaiah 53. And we're very familiar with that one as he talks about being despised and rejected by men. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds were healed. And like a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep going to the shear, he opened not his mouth as Jesus offered no argument against the charges that were made against him. Using the Old Testament and what was available at that time, Paul, Silas, they illuminate the Scriptures, revealing to these folks, these Jews, who he is. And that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah that you've been looking for. So he's explaining to that. He's proving it to them. He's giving them evidence. If you, if you think of a trial, as I was talking about, a compelling evidence. Well, I need facts to believe that the Nationals are the best team in baseball right now. So you would want to look at those things. Or if you're going to a trial or you're on a jury and you're, and you're weighing out the evidence, well, what are the facts of the case? What are those things that would make that person guilty or innocent? I want the facts. And that's what he's doing. He's laying out in Scripture, written hundreds of years before, that pointed to Christ, that this is the Christ that we've been waiting for. 
He's explaining that. He's, he's proving that to them and giving them the evidence to figure that out and to, and to weigh that out. Saying that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Do we believe that? It was necessary for Christ to suffer. How often even in our own minds do we think sometimes, did, did Christ really have to die? I mean, did he have to go through that torture and punishment? He did. He did. And also that he had to rise from the dead. It was necessary. It was unavoidable. There was no way around it. Before creation itself, this was not an option. Already predetermined, that, and that's what that word necessary is unavoidably determined by prior circumstances. This was a preordained event that Christ had to die. Judgment had to be inflicted. Judgment had to be made upon him for the sins and rebellion of a world. Think of Christ when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember how he prayed? Father, if, if this cup can pass from me, please, <laughs> nevertheless, not my will, but yours, the will of the Father, be done. It had to happen. Sin had to be dealt with. We can't be reconciled to God apart from his death. And he was the only one that could do that. So he's reasoning with them. He's giving them all this compelling evidence. Judgment had to occur. And Christ was the one that would take that judgment. Intended, intended for us. God's wrath intended for each and every one of us. Christ took that for us. Beaten, flogged, spit upon, hung on a cross, suffered. However, he also had to rise from the dead. And sometimes we can easily forget that. We think that Christ had to suffer and die and hang on the cross and be buried. But we can't disconnect the importance of his resurrection. For without that, there's no reason for us to be here this morning. It's a lie. There's no reason for us to, to study this word because it's all a lie. He had to die and he had to rise again from the dead. So we can't we can't dis ever disconnect the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection to our faith. It's essential. It's a central truth. Without it, there's no gospel. It's void. There is no good news. If he can't conquer the grave, he can't conquer any of my problems, my judgment, my sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ had to die. He had to suffer. But he also had to be raised again. So we cannot separate that. That's good news. 
It's exciting news. It should encourage us to know that Christ conquered the grave, conquering my sins, giving life that I can't create in myself. So it's essential. Matthew 28, 6, think of the angel when, when, at the tomb saying, he's not here, he's risen, as he said. He declared that. He made that known even while he was on earth, that he would raise again, that he would come back to life. Otherwise, he'd be a liar. So what are the results? <laughs> what are the results of this sharing of this faith? What are the, the, the consequences of the actions of Paul and Silas and the working of the Holy Spirit? Well, we see some good things. We see belief, right? We see some Jews are persuaded. We see some of them are convinced. And and many of the Greeks, some of the leading women. But we also see chaos, don't we? There are those who are angry, jealous. And what do they do? They gather wicked men of the rabble. Basically, people of the market that, that weren't necessarily, they, they were homeless or could have been homeless. They were lingering around. They were looked down upon by both Roman and Greek societies. They stir up a mob. <laughs> they're, in, they're inciting this. What are they doing? They're speaking lies. They're, they're saying that this Jesus is king. Caesar's our king. So they stir up a crowd. They stir up a mob. And they start to go after Jason next. So they're creating all this noise, this commotion, this disorder. And they go to the house of Jason. Paul and Silas would be staying there probably, but they weren't there that day. What do they do? So much for being secure in your home, right? They just drag him out. And his brothers, they don't find him. They take him before the, the politarchs, the city authorities. And they're accused of turning the world upside down. It says, turning the world upside down causing trouble, upsetting the norm, disturbing the balance. The world was already upside down. Without Christ, without hope, without salvation, it was already upside down. It was then, got news for you, it's already upside down today. Without Christ, the world is already upside down. What Paul and Silas were doing was turning it right side up but it was causing a lot of dissension, a lot of problems, trouble. It's going against the Jewish norms, their beliefs, as well as the Roman law. What they were doing was treasonous, but yet they did it with conviction. It's not what they were preaching. They weren't preaching that Jesus was going to overthrow Caesar. This wasn't about an earthly king. This was about a heavenly kingdom. They weren't leading a revolt, but they didn't see it that way. So the message, chaos, it's not received by all. It's not welcomed by everyone. So what do they do? They, they make Jason post bail, basically. He's got to forfeit some money. Not going to engage in any of this, and probably as part of that, you got to get rid of them because they're causing problems. So immediately they're asked to leave. And where do they go next? They go to Berea. So immediately the brothers sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, where do they go again? The Jewish synagogue. 
Are they deterred by this? They leave Philippi after everything they've been through in Philippi, jail, beaten, go right into Thessalonica, preaching the gospel, get run out of there, go into Berea, right into the Jewish synagogue again, preach the gospel. They're not deterred. They're not discouraged. How often do we get discouraged when we have one person that says one bad thing about us as Christians? How often are we then silent because we don't want to say anything that would invoke a riot or cause dissension with people? But that's what the gospel does. It forces people to have to make a decision. They have to figure out what they're going to do with Christ. He is either who he says he was or he's a liar. People have to come to make that decision about Christ and who he is. So come into Berea. These men here, they're, they're more noble. They're more open. They're more tolerant. They're more generous. The, the qualities of a, a good upbringing, they're a little more open to, to hearing what they have to say. And what does it say? They receive the word with all eagerness. They willingly, willingly accepted the truth that they had been brought. They're listening. They're open. And what's the next part? They examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They're looking at it closely. They're examining the evidence for themselves. They're considering it in detail. Is this true? They're not just taking it for face value because somebody's communicating it to them. They're going and finding out for themselves. They're verifying it. Important for us to do that. Our goal, certainly, as we teach from here, is to preach God's Word without error. But we're human. We certainly want to convey God's Word as articulately and as close to the way it's supposed to be. We don't ever want to be in error of preaching something that's wrong. There's a high responsibility for teaching God's Word. We certainly don't want to do it in a way that is selfish or trying to convince people to take action that's not biblical. And that's their goal, and that's what they want people to do, is they wanted people to come to know Christ for who He was. But what was exciting about that was that these people were self-feeding. They examined the Scriptures themselves. They knew the Scriptures, but they're also analyzing it for themselves. How important for us to know God's Word, to dig into it. And it's important, especially in today's society, to be able to be discerning, to know those things that are out there that are, may not be quite right those things that may be a little off. We've got to be able to test that against God's Word. Not people, not us, not me, not Rick, Matt, but against God's Word. So it's so important for each of us to carry that responsibility faithfully. So many believed here. So again, we've got belief, uh, but we've got chaos again. Because now the Jews from Thessalonica, 50 miles away, like almost to D.C., hear about this and start making their way over to, over to Berea. They hear what's happening, they're traveling, and they're, and they're coming to create resistance in Berea as well. So the gospel does not make everything happy and hunky-dory. It brings peace, it brings hope, but with it also comes along those who don't believe, refuse to believe, and that will cause conflict. So some key points to remember from today. First, I want you to see the courage of Paul. What an example of someone who is not deterred from the calling on his life. 
the adversity, the difficulty, the challenges. He's not swayed. His calling to share the gospel, his heart for the lost. Read in Romans 9, 1 to 3. I'll find it, I promise. Get going the right direction. I didn't mark it, that's why. 9, 1 to 3, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then in Romans 10, 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Everything he did for sharing the gospel was out of a heart for the lost. He endured all of these things, the beatings, the prison, for the sake of the gospel. So he kept reaching, kept moving, kept sharing. 2 Timothy 1, 8-12, he talks about being appointed as a preacher of the gospel, apostle and a teacher. And he says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Focus, intentionality on the gospel. You look at 2 Corinthians as well, and you think of 2 Corinthians about just exactly what he endured. And I shared this last time, but it's a good reminder of just what exactly he did endure. 2 Corinthians 11.23. His far greater labors, far more imprisonment with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. I think he was in a lot of danger. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through, through many a sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Not only just what he was going through physically and having to endure, but also his concern for the spiritual welfare of the, of the churches that he administered to and started and to encourage them to make sure that they remain faithful. Philippians 1.12 talks about everything that has happened to me has been for the advancement of the gospel. Do we look at life that way? Do we look at life as for the advancement, for the gospel? It's so easy we get caught up in the things of life, the concerns of life, our, our world, our creature comforts, the things that, that appeal to us, and so easy to forget. There's a broader purpose, a broader reason why we're here. It's the gospel, to love people, the source of his courage is faith and trust in God. Psalm 27, 1 to 3. Just like David, who makes mention, Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Paul did not have fear. And he continues to carry out the mission regardless of the circumstances that come his way. Secondly, let's look at the focus of Paul's message. That focus is Christ. He wasn't debating the political issues of the day, society issues, coming up with personal solutions for things. It was all about Christ. Not talking about structures, debating the policies, solutions that we can come up with. A lot of the debate we have today, we can do the same thing finding those solutions to problems that fall short of actually mentioning Christ. We're in a world of hatred. We're in a world that is divisive. We're in a world that is not going to come back together again because of sin. And the only way that's going to happen is through Christ. So it's so important for us to just acknowledge the fact we can't make heaven on earth here. But we are called to share God's love with everyone around us and bring that hope to them. And it requires us to be trained. It requires us to be ready. It requires us to be prepared. It requires us to know his word. But we have to be prepared for that. So he doesn't debate the political or social issues. He argues scripture. He's giving evidence. It's not something he created. It's God's word. His inspired word. One of our core values is the biblical authority that we're based upon as a church. Truth for living. God revealed himself through the scriptures. And the Bible is our ultimate and sufficient authority for life. Everything we believe, everything about us as believers, as, as Christians, comes from scripture. comes from God's holy word. Everybody's familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? All Scripture given by God, profitable for what? Doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. All Scripture. Paul's using Old Testament to share with these folks. New Testament wasn't written yet. We have the benefit of both, Old and New Testament, and how to see that fit together so perfectly. So we have more resources today than, than even what they had then from God's Word. Preached Christ that he had to suffer, that he had to rise again. Again, without it, it's all a lie. Gives us hope. Brings hope today. In a world that is scarred and marred by sin, that is upside down. It's only Christ that's going to turn it right side up. So we can debate the issues, political issues that are out there and getting ready for elections next year. Everybody will get angry, and people will be firing stuff off on Facebook and social media. And we'll get in, hopefully, stay out of the midst of that. Sometimes we'll get sucked into it. We have to remember Scripture is the ultimate authority. That's where hope comes from. That's where the solutions will come from. Christ is our solution for sin and our separation. And it's only through him that we can be reconciled to God again. We also see that Paul knew the word. He preached it. 
And God bless that, that truth, that hope that was shared. It's a source for us to share as well. How well do we know it? We could probably say, and I, I did this one time with my small group, talking about the Bible. How many copies do you have at home? I think I counted, we brought in, I actually brought them all into our small group. It was like 20 different copies of Scripture. Ones we got when we were little, new Bible when we get older, this one works better, all these different things. How many different copies do we have? There are people across this globe that don't have anything. And they're grabbing for anything that they can get their hands on to read about Scripture. Don't take it for granted. We have a lot of freedoms in, in, in the U.S. We certainly don't want to take it for granted, our blessings that we have to read it and study it and share it. So be prepared to engage someone with the Word. Look at the garden. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve, tree of knowledge of good and evil? There's one tree in the center. Don't eat it, right? Eve, in a perfect creation, without sin, in temptation, but without sin, twisted that a little bit, right? When she engaged with the serpent. And she said, God said we can't touch it, eat it or touch it. That was not what God said. So even in a perfect world, Eve got that a little off. How much more so can that happen to us today? How much easier can it be for us today in a sinful, fallen world where Scripture can get manipulated, twisted, misapplied, and be an error? So it's so important, just as we see with the Bereans, analyze it, read it, study it, grow in it, be discerning. Study those key truths, the evidence, the facts, the context of Scripture. We have, to, we have to be in His Word. We have to read it. We have to carve out that time to do that in order to grow in our knowledge of it. We think about it's Halloween and, and we've got time coming where everybody would come into our doors and knocking on the doors and trick-or-treat, doing tricks, getting candy. That one time of the year where you actually have people coming to your door can you find a way to engage those people? Sharing God's love in a simple way as you hand out candy to them? How about those who come to your door knocking with other religions and other belief systems? How quickly do we just want to slam the door and go, I'm not interested. I don't want to deal with you today. Uh-uh. I had a great conversation with a couple of ladies who were Jehovah Witness earlier in the summer, cutting the grass when they show up. And I'm like, okay. But you know what? It was such an awesome conversation because I got to share truth with them, to share Scripture with them. Was I inconvenienced because I was doing something else? Sure. But yet at the same time, those are opportunities for us to share the gospel, opportunities to share truth, not to back away. They're at your house. <laughs> Engage with them. And then learn through that process, grow in that knowledge. Say, okay, here's some things I need to learn next time they come. Here's some things I need to tweak. Here's some things that, that they believe that may be a little bit different from what I believe. But when we know Scripture and we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us, He'll allow you to communicate truth. Don't back away. Don't disengage. The world needs us. 
The world needs Christ. So we need to be prepared to engage. We need to be prepared to share. And we share in love. And that was a great thing I, I shared with these ladies. They were so willing to listen. And I said, I love you. I do. I admire your persistence to go door to door the way that you are. But you're wrong. <laughs> but I love you. It's okay. We don't hate people. We want to share truth and love. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul, as he was debating and giving them arguments and listening to those questions, do you know people who have questions about Christ? People that have given you answers that you don't, or given you questions that you don't know the answers to? Find the answers. Go back and research. Prepare and train so that when you engage them the next time, you can give them that answer. It's a calling for all of us. So he reasons, he's having those conversations, answering the questions, helping them understand the contents. And then we see the response to the message. In Thessalonica, there were some Jews and great many Greeks. Berea, many believed, but many did not. And there was resistance. And there was anger. And there was hostility. We need to expect that. We need to expect that. Because using Christ's name other than a swear word is not popular. And it requires people to have to understand who he is and what they're going to do with him. He's either going to be Lord of their life and they're going to yield their lives to him or they're going to push him aside. And Paul's pressing on here to say Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He's the one we've been looking for. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again. And he's working. And also trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that bears witness to the work of Christ. He's the one that works in hearts of people. That's the great thing about it. When we share the gospel, it's not on you to save everybody. <laughs> it's not. Just be faithful with the message. But you don't have to save anyone. Pray, though, that the Holy Spirit would work in people's hearts and provide that conviction. Because he's the one that convicts. He's the one that regenerates. He's the one that sanctifies. He's the one that seals us. Remember Acts 1.8, earlier in Acts? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness of Christ. Final words from, from Paul, and I shared this last time as well, and I think it's good words as a reminder. 2 Timothy 4. 1 to 8. Again, these are his last words before he would be executed. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who has judged the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repro reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all 
who have loved his appearing. Encouraging words. He knew what was ahead. He knew his time was almost over. But he also knew what awaited him in heaven. So the big question, what are you doing to know God's word better and share it more clearly and more frequently with a lost and hurting world? This is my challenge. This is our challenge. We, we don't want this to just be a Sunday thing. We, we love coming together. We're called to do that, to come together in fellowship and to worship collectively and corporately. But it's not just a Sunday thing. If you leave out of here and the rest of the week you're doing your own thing, you're missing it. Our mission mandate, again, part of our core values, it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop at this church. Every believer is commanded to partner in the Great Commission and empowered by the Holy Spirit for everyday mission. The Holy Spirit will work through you to carry out His mission for your life. So that's my prayer this morning. If you're not a believer today, certainly we would welcome you to make that decision because Christ is the only one. He's the only solution for all of our woes, taking care of our sin problem and bringing us back into that right relationship with Christ and with God. Doesn't mean life is always going to be easy. For Paul, it was not. Being a believer was not easy. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us as either. But it's a high calling for us. Will you be obedient? Will you accept the invitation that he's offering to you? There'll be some of us down front if you'd like to come forward. Pray with me this morning. God, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray that every time we open it, we're challenged and encouraged, convicted. Lord, that you'll draw out those things in our lives that distract from what you're looking to do in us and through us. Thank you for Paul's example. Thank you for the truth of the gospel and as it spread throughout Macedonia and in the creation of churches that would continue to do your work. Father, we pray that here in Caroline County, that the work you've called us to here will go forward. And Lord, that we'll be faithful to that mission. Father, we love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.